Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. <laughs> Gotta love a church that's full of sinners. Glad to have you here. If you're our guest today, uh, welcome. We just encourage you to sit down and relax. My name is Jerry, and uh, we're walking through the book of Matthew. That's basically what we're doing. I want to encourage you all to pay close attention to uh, some details that will be happening in August in terms of uh, Engage, which is our newcomer's welcome. Also, uh, Growth Tracks will be starting again. Soul Searching. we got a whole bunch of stuff that we're, we're building up for come fall. Uh, great things for you to invite friends and uh, uh, family members to come and be a part of. And uh, I am just thrilled to be here uh, this morning, and I hope you are too. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this time. And it's not arbitrary by any means. You saw this day coming. And so this morning, we just sort of offer ourselves anew to you in body, in soul, and in spirit. So my prayer, my desire is that you would speak to us in your truth and that we may glorify you in all things. So Lord, as I stand here, I pray that the words I speak are not my words, but yours. And I pray that you would soften the hearts of the men and women here and that we would give attention to your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So today I have a tough passage of scripture. I'll just have to put it out there right now. And it's one that's going to get us thinking, it's one that's going to get you talking, it's one that's going to probably, with my communication style today, might get you a little bit upset at me, or maybe not. So we start off by having two choices, and let me just create the scenario, Jesus is teaching his disciples, last week he was talking about ask, seek, and knocking, and now he moves and he transitions as he's talking to the disciples here in Matthew chapter 7. And he says, look, there's a choice of two gates, guys. Are you listening? And then we're encouraged later on, as you'll find out very shortly, to uh, choose between two types of guides. And then there's a reality check that he throws at us at the judgment seat of Jesus that we're going to dive right into. Now, in Matthew 7, Jesus is cautioning his listeners that if they're to enter into his kingdom... They have to turn away from the mainstream of Judaism. It's, it's these religious folk that have caused so many people so much grief and heartache. And so the context that Jesus is talking to his followers and that he mentions is that, look, he says, look, there's a choice you need to make. And we pick it up here where it says you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad, the gate is wide for many who choose that way, but the gate to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. We don't like these passages of Scripture. And Jesus points out that only one can enter, that one can only enter God's kingdom through the narrow gate. There are, only, there are two gates, it's quite clear, only two paths, only two destinies for every person, you and me included in that. And each of us are now presented with a choice. We choose one or the other. Now this may seem surprising to some, especially in our culture, because most people feel that we have an infinite number of alternatives available to us. You know, that all paths lead to God and that it matters very little which one we choose as long as we choose something. But Jesus, when we look at scripture, narrows our choices down to two. 
We make decisions, and then those decisions turn around and they make us. You with me? To say it another way is that your decision about Christ affects your destination. It's something that we all have to come to grips with. And it's not an easy passage to look at. Now, in these two familiar verses, Jesus warns, don't worry about being politically correct. He says, you need to worry about being spiritually correct. And he sets before the crowd sort of this either-or choice. And it's all regarding eternal life. There are two gates, two ways, two destinies. There's only two. And the key to understanding this section is that in order for us to get to God's kingdom, there's only one gate that takes us through to it. And once you walk through that one gate, technically you then begin this road of what we would call discipleship. But unfortunately, many people are going to choose the more appealing, the wide, the broad, not realizing that that road leads to eternal destruction. And obviously Jesus didn't say these words with a smile on his face. It doesn't make him happy that only a few are going to find this way. He's just stating a sad fact of life. Interesting, Jesus uses that term narrow in in both verses 13 and 14. And narrow is a description that none of us ever embrace. We don't really like that. You can call me vain, you can call me proud, you can call me mean, but don't you dare call me narrow. Right? Well, you know, we're all about tolerance. We're all about pluralism. We're all about, you know, inclusivism. That's what we're about. Yet the small gate is the narrow way. The way, that Jesus said, actually leads to eternal life. And that gate is Jesus himself. We have to wrestle with this. In his own words, Jesus said, I say to you, I'm the door uh, of the sheep. I am the door. If, uh, if anyone enters through me, he shall be sh- saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. I'm the good shepherd, he says. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. In another place, Jesus goes on, he says, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So God's provision for man's salvation and entrance to the kingdom is in faith, uh, is through faith in Jesus Christ as God's Messiah, our Savior. That's the gospel right there. You know, Peter declares, he goes, he says, there's no other salvation, uh, there's uh, salvation in no one else, uh, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men, which we must be saved. So when you think about it, there's no other way that I can cut it for you. And that's the harsh reality of this passage of scripture. It's a difficult one for us to grasp. It's, it's Jesus, and it's hard. His narrow gate leads to the kingdom. The way of discipleship then, you know, stretches, you know, throughout one's years on earth and ultimately leading to eternal life. This message is not popular in our pluralistic culture. And I have to come back and say, this is not my idea. This was Jesus's idea. It's his message. And in the end, um, life's biggest decision is what you and I do with Jesus. Life's biggest decision when you think about it, is what's the gate we're going to choose? Like that's got to, you know, make you sort of confront reality in one way or another. And it's interesting, that word translated find. 
is, is never used to describe an, an intense and futile search for something. You know, something it's hard to find. It's used to describe something that is found simply by making the effort to look for it. Seeking and finding are very closely related, and we see that in Matthew chapter 7. The implication is, though, not many people look for the way. The implication is that many don't even bother to look. Scripture tells us if we look for Christ, we will find him. He'll reveal himself. It was interesting. We uh, had a meeting last night, and there's a bit of a dilemma going on, and so... In this process of the meeting, I, I just said, you know, we just need to take this to prayer and we need to ask the Lord to intervene. We need to ask God to answer our prayer so that we can move ahead on this. And we leave the meeting and I would say probably within 30, 45 minutes, I get a message texting me back going, hey, by the way, you know, this person contacted me and all of a sudden there's a solution to the problem. And God is showing up in the little details when we bring these little details. This is what Pastor Jordan was talking about last week on the ask, the seeking, and the knocking. You know, we're not futile, futile search for God. He's there. We just need to be moving in that direction and letting him show up. But why is this gate small? Why is it so narrow? Well, the simple answer is that it, it, it's, it's restrictive. And it's not that it's poorly marked and you don't see it. Jesus pointed out that he was God's provision for forgiveness of sins, the entrance into eternal life. He's very clear on where this gate is. It's narrow because the gate itself is very exclusive and restrictive. People can only approach God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Furthermore, people enter into the kingdom one at a time, as through a turnstile. You know, this is because people need... Uh, we must be saved by a personal act of faith. It's just something intense between God and me. We are never saved in clusters, are we? And just because my parents are saved doesn't necessarily mean I'm saved. It's in this individual aspect. And people cannot add or take away from God's way, God's plan of salvation that's written throughout the scriptures. And while God's way of salvation is exclusive and restrictive, it's through the narrow door, it's through Jesus Christ. It's interesting that the gate to hell is broad and inviting. And this is precisely what irritates unbelievers. And maybe that's you today. I, I, I don't know. I don't know who's here. You know? And the common question is, why do Christians think you, know, you have the only way? I don't know if you've heard that. I've heard that all the time. And I have to confess that we Christians often convey the impression that we're right while everybody else is wrong. And, and I have to admit, we sometimes err with that attitude. But God has declared in his word that there is no other way for salvation other than through faith in his son. And while Christians may wrongly convey an exclusive and superior attitude, God has declared, though, that there's only one way to heaven. And people often will gladly choose any other way other than God's way because all the other ways allow people to keep their pride, their possessions, their preferences, whatever you want to add, and yet God will have none of that. He strips it right down. That we are sinful creatures in need of a Savior. Like, that's tough wrestling. This is what I got to play with all, like, conviction all week long. And then I get to come and share, you know, with all of you. 
So our eternal destiny sort of hangs upon the choice between two alternatives. And, and we can go the tolerant and accommodating way, which is well-traveled, and, and on which you'll have a great deal of company according to Scripture. But in the final analysis, it's actually a way of destruction. Or you're going to take the narrow, restrictive way of faith in Christ Jesus, which leads to life. And as Jesus eventually says, life abundantly, fullness of life. And the beauty of that, even though it's restrictive, even though it's narrow, we'll never walk alone. We may never be with the majority. And our path may be narrow, but our destiny is very sure. We know where we're going. And this is the choice which Jesus confronts every person. Where are you going? Which door are you going to take? And so you've got to imagine, his listeners are stunned. One of two ways. Which one are you going to take? Uh, I don't know. What's the answer? Jesus, right. We got the Sunday school answer down. And then he gives his listeners a warning, and he says, look it, beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep, but really are vicious wolves. Now, I have to be honest, my mind races all the time, and so whenever I read this, I have an image from my childhood that always comes to mind, so I want you to watch this video. real cartoons. That's real cartoons. None of this Dragon Ball Z stuff, all right? This is real cartoons. Now, you know, every morning, Ralph and Sam, they meet at the time clock, right? The Sam, the sheepdog, went to his post on the cliff. He overlooks his position as head of the sheep protection department. Ralph, who's true to his nature, would slink away into the forest. He plans his strategy as head of this sheep acquisition and consumption department. And as the day wore, Sam would sit patiently at his post with this protective eye, so to speak, overlooking the flock. And Ralph would try one scheme after another in hopes of making his quota of sheep for the day. However, no matter how hard he tried, it seems that poor Ralph's plan was always thwarted by Sam at the last moment. I loved it. It's predictable but funny. 
And inevitably, as the day draws to a close, the whistle blow, you know, Ralph would pull out all the stops and slip into a sheep costume and meander into the fold with hope of finally catching his prey, only to realize that his catch was, in fact, none other than Sam the sheepdog, who had dressed himself up as a sheep in the anticipation of Ralph's scheme, and poor Ralph never catches a break. It's beautiful. And yet this, this Ralph Sheep's costume, though, illustrates a tactic that's used by our enemy, the devil, when it comes to the church. And in fact, in, in Matthew 7, 15, Jesus warns us in similar uh, fashion that Satan is going to send ravenous wolves into the fold dressed in sheep's clothing to catch the sheep unaware and to snatch them away by false teaching. So then it's imperative that we have these discerning spirits so that we can discern the motives of those who are around, among us. And isn't that interesting? So Jesus is looking at his people and he says, okay, you've got one of two doors to choose, but also I want you to understand something. Beware of the false prophets now who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit. That is by the way they act. You can pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs or from thistles. Or sorry, can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit. A bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Yes, as you can identify a tree by its fruit, so you can identify people by their actions. Again, another tough passage of scripture, just sort of jammed right there together. You know, wolves have always been bad in our folklore. Uh, one of the latest movies, The Grey, with Liam Neeson. Have you ever seen that? Yeah, that's one that makes you just, ooh. But it's there. And when the wolf is at your door, it's bad news. Whether you're a pig or a human, it doesn't really matter. Wolves are always pulling down who? The very young, they're pulling down the sick, the very old, the stragglers, the ones off by themselves. And in Scripture, wolves are not portrayed in a good light either. So in Luke 10, Jesus sent out his 70 disciples. He said, go, I'm sending you out as lambs into the midst of wolves. He knew what was awaiting them. He knew what they were walking into. And when they started preaching the gospel, when they started doing mighty works among the people, they were going to arouse the wolves. The religious, the political establishment would not be fond of these people rocking their boats and honing in on their territory. They would be thirsty for blood. And that's what took place. So they would, these people, these wolves, were longing to rip the flesh and crush the bones of these so-called defenseless disciples. But he gave them a warning. Matthew chapter 10, 16, Jesus tells the 12 basically the same thing. And he gives them now instructions on how to act. He says, be wise as a serpent. And, and to be that way is to be able to quickly assess the situation and handle it accordingly. Most snakes will turn away from a fight and only strike uh, a human when they feel that they have no choice. And so the disciples, they knew that there was going to be dangerous times for them. They needed to know when to take a stand. They needed to know when to shake the dust off their feet and walk or even run away if necessary. And so the biggest job of a spiritual shepherd or as a pastor is to keep the, the wolves away from the flock. And Paul knew this in Acts chapter 20, starting in 29, that soon after he left and he would leave, wolves would gather. 
you know, slick talking, credential showing. The, and it doesn't matter what they look like. They're wolves nonetheless. And they didn't, people were going to come in that didn't really care for the flock, didn't care for the church. They only wanted to fleece the flock, so to speak. And when they had all they could get, they would leave departing and leaving pain behind, leaving disappointment behind, and go so far as actually leaving people behind who are losing their faith. So the wolves that Jesus is talking about are the ones who come right into our community. Again, another tough passage of Scripture. Now, if they would come in snarling and frothing at the mouth, the sheep could easily recognize them, but they, they come in dressed as sheep themselves, as angels of light. They speak wonderful words. You don't, you don't notice that. Uh, um, they'll say and do whatever it takes to win your confidence. Some, even as you read the scripture, come with added wonders and miracles. And yet, when you begin to do a casual search of their theology, it shows their, not only their heresy, but their hypocrisy. So again, Jesus presents us with another choice. We as believers have to choose. Do we choose accuracy over appearance? When, when, when Satan wants to steer people in the direction of the broad gate, I believe he uses special human messengers called false prophets. That's what we see here in this passage. He warns us to differentiate between the true and false prophets, not just the pastors, but all of us. Why is it so important to be able to recognize a false prophet? Well, it's quite simple, because a prophet speaks for God. He stands at the crossroads where those two gates are. He's pointing people either to the narrow gate or to the wide one. If what the prophet says is wrong, then those who believe his message are in danger of being lost forever. Every Sunday morning, I get up here and I believe without question I function in the gift of prophecy. To call your attention to God's word. And you have a responsibility to discern what you hear. And Jesus speaks a principle that clarifies the situation. He says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That word translated beware is both a warning, it's a command. It means you should constantly be alert. You and me should constantly be alert who's in our midst. And the reason for concern is that false prophets are deceptive. They always have been. They always will be. This is why when you study the New Testament, you see that 24 out of 27 New Testament books, there's always a warning that for believers against false teachers. That's pretty big. If they are easy to detect false prophets, that is, there would be no need for these continual warnings. And furthermore, one of the primary responsibilities of the elders, the pastors of the church, is to protect the church, is to protect the sheep from false teachers. So if you think about it, if you're Satan, how would you seek to deceive people? Well, you, you'd most likely use religion and religious teachers. That's probably the best way to do it. You know, you use that back door, that incognito approach. That's always the most effective. You get people with their guard down because appearances can be deceiving. And we can be, listen, we can be very gullible if somebody presents a great argument. You know, I can present a great argument. That's, that's easy, but is it biblical? And this is why Jesus says we need to beware of the false prophets. And then he goes on to explain how to identify them. And he says you'll know them by their fruits. And you'll notice that he says it twice, so it's actually bracketed right in there. 
um, you'll know them by their fruits. So there's not more questions. So what is false about false prophets? You know, if, if it's not their outward, is it their outward works? Is their inward? Like, how do we identify this? And Jesus says, well, look, they're going to look like sheep. They're going to look just like you, just like what's going on. They're going to fit in to the group. They appear to be genuine. But if false prophets didn't perform good works, no one would then believe them. So they live and they act like Christians. Jesus is making it real to us. And so their falsity is not just found then in their actions. There has to be a more reliable solution to these verses. And there is. Of course, I sit back and I, I ask, you know, what makes a prophet, a, you know, a prophet? What makes a false prophet dangerous? And the answer to both of those questions is really the words. Specifically, prophetic words or prophecies or what comes out of our mouth is so weighted. And by fruits, Jesus is referring to what comes out of the lips of the false prophet. It's not necessarily the actions, because we see that. You know, this is confirmed in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37, where Jesus uses nearly the identical language again. Therefore, he admonishes his disciples, really, to be, look, we need to be fruit inspectors of people. Especially people who pass themselves off as prophets. The Jewish audience that Matthew addresses would naturally think of two Old Testament passages. So when they're reading this, this book that, that he writes, the, one refers to a false prophet who prophecy actually came to pass in Deuteronomy. That's in their reference. Another one is a false prophet whose prophecy was not fulfilled, again, in Deuteronomy. And in both situations, the emphasis is not how the prophet lived, but on what the prophet said. And the people of Israel were told to observe what a prophet says and see if it aligns with what God says regarding, you know, of any signs that the prophet might perform with his prophecy. And our, our words need to work with the actions, and they all need to line up with Scripture. And it may surprise you that it makes no difference whether signs or wonders accompany a prophet's message. We get caught up in signs and wonders. We want to see miracles happen. And a lot of times, we will see in our culture, maybe there's miracles happening, but the, it's a false prophet. He's not lining up with scriptural teaching. And if his message doesn't agree with what God has said, the prophet is to be recognized and be deemed as false. And the true testing for discovering a false prophet or a teacher is to compare his or her message with the scripture. And this has always been the test for discovering who speaks for God and who doesn't. And again, God cannot possibly contradict himself. God's words stand forever. So we must judge those who claim to speak for God by the scriptures. And we can discern, you and I, not just me, but you, you can discern whether a prophet's message is false just by knowing the truth. You know, in the States, the FBI trained their agents to detect counterfeit bills by studying the real thing. And then eventually they can actually master uh, the genuine article and they can pick it out of a counterfeit because they know it. They know it that well. And this is the same as the truth with, with false teaching. You can immerse yourself in scripture. You can immerse yourself in biblical teaching. You can, and when you do that, you can be able to ferret out which is actually false teaching. You don't have to be a cult expert or anything else like that. You, you just need to be a diligent Bible student. Study the scriptures. False teachers are wolves. And their teachings, 
like teeth. They, they, they rip and they consume people. And we don't think of doctrine like that. We don't talk a lot about doctrine, even though it's the way we live our life. After all, you know, Jerry, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, right? You know, Jerry, doesn't the Bible tell us not to judge? You know, who are you to tell me who to believe, Jerry? How intolerably intolerant you are. And yet Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we need to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take thought captive to obey Christ. Interesting that Paul's use of language, again, it destroys, it decimates, it enslaves, imprisons false teaching. We've got to get rid of it. We've got to cut it out. This is violent language, and it's reserved for immense danger. You don't apathetically slap an attacking wolf. Right? You aggressively stab it. Where is this going? <laughs> so as believers, you and I, you and I have the responsibility to test everything according to 1 Thessalonians. Test me. And, and mirror the nobility of the Bereans who filtered all teaching through the lens of Scripture. We each have a biblical responsibility to pay attention to what we listen to and what we receive. I've literally had, or numerous times, people say to me, you know what, Jerry, the church is filled with hypocrites, right? Now, for the first couple of years, I've, I've always wanted to argue against, the only problem is that I pastor a church. And the church is filled with hypocrites, right? So, in fact, I contend that it's actually worse than that. So let's just be real and honest about what the church is. It's not the building, it's, it's us. And you hear it every morning when I say, Good morning, saints. Crickets, right? Good morning, sinners. Oh, hypocrites are here. We hear it. We know it. We understand where we walk. In Acts 20, Paul's in Ephesus. He's preaching the gospel. He's, he's talking about this narrow door, the pathway to God's kingdom. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus Christ being crucified, risen from the dead for why? Our sin. And the problem here is that the Jews in Ephesus are, uh, are telling and teaching everybody that they have to become Jews first. So they're coming in behind Paul and they're saying, look, uh, you need to be circumcised first, and you need to eat a certain way, the dietary law, if you're really going to be a true Christian. And so Paul's saying, no, 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 you have to trust in the cross of Christ alone. And they're saying, well, no, it's the cross of Christ plus. It's Jesus plus. And, and, and they're Jesus plus people. And, and, and so Paul is teaching grace and mercy alone. And they're saying, well, you have to obey the law. And then you get grace and mercy, uh, which, by the way, immediately changes the meaning of grace and mercy. And so that's the argument. And the Jews are so adamant about this point that they're trying to kill Paul. And they beat him on several occasions. And they, they actually once thought he was dead. They dragged him outside the city, you know, his lifeless body, as it's described in Scripture. And then, of course, he comes to... He just has a thumping of his life. He comes to him. What does he do? He goes back in. Let's keep going. He goes, I didn't shriek back from the Jews or the Gentiles or Greeks or the Jews. It didn't matter to me. I was preaching boldly. 
He then goes on, he adds, the Holy Spirit tells me that if I go to Jerusalem, you know, basically some bad stuff awaits me. And, and just because it was going to be painful and just because it wasn't, it was going to hurt, Paul doesn't interpret this as, oh, God doesn't want me to go. Rather, he says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel, the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. He knew what God had called him to do. And he spent those three years in Ephesus. And now he's telling these people that he's with, this is the last time I see you. And we keep moving on. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock. Now keep in mind, he's talking to the elders. He's not just talking to the group at large. He's talking to the men and, and women who are governing, who are shepherding the church at Ephesus. And then he says, watch out for the wolves. So, when I study the scriptures and I look at this, and I have to look at this room today, according to this text, there could be those who the Bible would call wolves. And everybody's looking at their neighbor going, is it you? Is it you? Because it's not me. <laughs> wolves are not believers in Christ. Again, a tough teaching. They are parading as one, somehow looking to take advantage of God's people. And the biblical command on the eldership is to shoot and kill the wolves. Not literally. I mean, I'm not packing heat. I do have a microphone pack here, but we are commanded by God to take their butt and to throw it out of here and to tell them that they're not welcome here. Welcome to Soul Sanctuary, place of refuge, repair, and rejuvenation. So when you understand who we are as a church, refuge, repair, rejuvenation, you also understand on how heightened alert we are to make this place a safe place for everybody, for the non-believer and for the believer, for the hurt and the abused and for the confused, for everybody, for anybody. This needs to be a safe place. This needs to be a place of teaching in which you become confronted, not by the guy or the gal up on stage, but you become confronted by the Holy Spirit as you honestly and with integrity begin to pour through the scriptures and allow him to speak to you. It's a place where you come and you belong, and it's a place where you then move into believe, and once you believe and you begin become a student, you then behave, and it's all through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so this needs to be a safe place. But I also have to preach the whole council. I also have to deal with the, the passages that are here. And, you know, some of you go, well, Jerry, if you're going to kick their butt out of the church, that's really not loving. Really? Really? Do you let your kids play on Pamina Highway? I did that once when Winnipeg won the Grey Cup. We're throwing the football. I remember that was in the 80s sometime. And throwing the football, it was still dangerous. And he said, well, Jerry, no, I would never do that. Well, well, why wouldn't you do that would be my question. Well, of course, because I'm a loving parent. I understand that. 
So would you dip your kid in blood and let the pit bulls play with them? That becomes my next question to you. You know, you, of course you wouldn't do any of those things. Why? Because you're loving parents. Well, in the same way, love would never allow wolves to mingle in with the sheep. You got me? Ever. And I have to be honest, sometimes there are wolves who come here. Now, some of you, maybe you're not a believer in Jesus, and, and you're going, you know, I've been wounded by the church, Jerry. I've been hurt by this. I've been hurt by that. Um, here's what I want to tell you. Just because people go to church doesn't make them Christians. That's a Bible Belt myth, right? And that's why many of our churches are not growing. We think that attendance is the trick, and we miss out on the personal experience that Jesus wants us to have. You know, I remember somebody saying, you know, <clears throat> Jerry, I don't think soul's for me. I'm more of a Jesus light type of person. You've got to be kidding me. Jesus light. Oh, okay, I'm reading this stuff. It ain't light. Our church attendance doesn't equate a love for Jesus Christ. It's our transformed life. And the fact of the matter was, when we read scripture, there are wolves, there has been, and there always will be. Second Peter says, but false prophets also arose amongst the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master, Jesus, who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So listen to what is being said here, especially if you're a skeptic who is not fond of the church because of the Christians that you've met. Paul said that if you're caught up in the lie of the enemy to distract you away from God's truth by idiots who claim to know Christ but don't know him and attend church regularly. You need to be aware of that. The wolves are in the church, and there are all different types of wolves. We need to be aware of them. It's played itself out here in several ways here at Soul Sanctuary. There are young men in the city of Winnipeg who know that there are young, beautiful women here at Soul Sanctuary. And so they come here to hunt. They are predators. Some of you have experienced my conversation. Oh, you've come, you found a nice young lady. I put my arm around you. I walked with you. And I have said, and I mean it, you break her heart, I break your face. I have no problem as a pastor saying that. I'm 6'4", 252, trying to lose weight, struggling really hard. <laughs> but I can crush you. I watch. Well, it's not your business. No, it is my business. I'm a pastor. I'm a shepherd. It is my business. And a lot of times there have been men who have come here and their reputation has preceded them because we ask questions. And I plead with you, our young ladies, that good behavior and godliness are not the same thing. That if you marry good and not godly, you've set yourself up for sorrow, especially if you want to raise children and serve God. If you marry a man who's not interested in those things, your children are going to take their cues from their daddy. And so I speak to the men now that are here. This is something that you gentlemen need to take seriously. When we find out that you're hunting here, we're going to shoot you. I just want to put it out really clear. 
Even to the point, and I have to be really honest, and many of you don't even know this, but I'll say this. We actually have pictures put up for our security and our staff to see that when certain wolves actually wander, actually wander on this property, I am notified so I can have a discussion with them. That's the reality of the church world. There are those who have their own convenient brand of theology and you know, they see it as their mission to come to a church and to convert everybody within the church to them who will listen. These people are massed as sheep. They look around, they sound innocent, but really what they do is they come in and they try to cause division and they try to teach heresy. And my job is to look out for them and to deal very directly with them. And again, we love our life group, our small group ministry here. But the idea of a bunch of adults sitting around uh, the Bible answering the question, what do you think this text means to you, is a nightmare. And, and I don't know if you see the problem with, with it in that roots. You're saying that the text then actually has no real meaning except for what you ascribe to it. Well, you know, I think it means this. I think it means this. Doesn't the Bible clearly say that there's a way that seems right to man that in the end is death? Well, I think is like me taking stock advice from a 16-month-old child. You know, many false teachings and doctrines begin with those three words, well, I think. And when I have to have those conversations with people, I'll tell you this much, those conversations never end well. We go back to the scriptures. I've had people claim that they are prophets or that they operate in the prophetic gifts. I would get emails and, and uh, people come and talk and then they attempt to uh, 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 speak their own twisted message into people's lives, even trying to speak into mine. I've had to stop them. I've had to cut them down at the knees. I've had to tell them and actually pull up Scripture and point them back to Scripture. I had to point out the error and then tell them, and I've said this, you are not welcome here until you write a letter of apology, until you repent, because you're not welcome until you do. And when you put it in writing, then all my leaders will see it. Those conversations don't end well either. Or if a guy wants to sleep with a, a woman who's not his wife and then bring his girlfriend to Seoul while his wife sits on the other side of the building. We're going to drag your butt out of here and we're going to tell you that until you and your girlfriend repent, you're not welcome here. Why? Because Seoul is to be the safe place for this woman and her children. That's the job of a shepherd. If a guy continues to beat his wife and demands that his and his kids, and he demands that his church is, is his before it was hers. Trust me, I've had a talk that if he even tries to set foot in the parking lot, the police would be notified. Because I have to guarantee that his wife and his kids are safe each and every time that they show up here. I had one of those conversations that almost ended in a punch being thrown. I was so hoping he would. This is your loving pastor speaking. <laughs> Does this mean, Jerry, that we're going to lose members? I don't care about losing members. I'm going to die. And I'm not building this thing upon me. I care about protecting the flock from walking down a wide road and paying for it eternally. 
Now, I know there are those of you who are probably saying, well, where's all the grace in that, Jerry? Well, there is no grace for wolves. So once again, you're probably like, well, Jerry, I don't know if I agree with you. That's fine. Let the Bible, let the Bible be my defender. Let's go to Jesus, Matthew 23, 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for neither uh, enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. When we go through the book of Matthew, we're going to see that Jesus is not politically correct when it comes to wolves, specifically the religious folk. You hypocrites, he says. You whitewashed tombs, he calls them. He even tells people in the, in the crowds with the Pharisees all around him, he says, don't follow these fools. Don't be anywhere around them. They're kind of like yeast that will work through the entire batch and spoil the whole thing. He says to avoid these people. But in our Canadian culture, we've gotten so soft and so pretty that we go, no, no, no. Just let the wolf slick the blood off our child's face. That's fine. And if he bites the kid's face off, oh, that stinks, but... It must be the will of God. No. No, you kill the thing. And maybe you hang up its carcass for the rest of the wolves to see. I would love to do that one. Uh, we're the church that's friendly. You know, I found in my personal experience that nine times out of ten, when false prophets are confronted about their sins and their heresies or whatever, their tactic is to avoid and to scream. And what they say is, I feel like I'm being judged here. Yes, you are being judged here in the Bible. Well, the Bible doesn't say, you know, it says, judge not lest ye be judged. I said, absolutely it does. And here's my encouragement to you. Read the context of the, the text. Supplement with listening to my message two weeks ago. I'll just give it to you, man. That's easy. If Scripture makes it clear, it's clear. Discernment. Let me give you one more text in Timothy. It says, now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, someone will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This is the hard, hard reality, the hard teachings of Jesus. Now, is, is, is Paul, when he's writing to Timothy, is he talking about outside the church or inside the church? Work with me. Inside. Yeah. Doctrines of demon meant, meant to lead astray men and women seeking God through consciousness that are seared by their allegiance to something that is false. And it's all inside the church. And so when people say, well, the church is just filled with hypocrites, and, and if that's what it is, and then I don't want to fall, i got to tell them, well, I'm not sure that the people that you're looking at are actually believers. Maybe you got it wrong. Please, please don't ever confuse church attendance with fellowship of Christ. They're not the same thing. Because every weekend, churches are filled with hundreds of thousands of people in North America who know nothing of who Jesus Christ is. They just go. If you don't believe me, continue to read Matthew. And again... We close with this, where Jesus says, not everybody who calls out to me, Lord, Lord. Now, this is fascinating. Not everybody who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. And on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We performed many, many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me. Like a tough passage of scripture. It's not a very popular verse. 
but it's here. And, and, and I actually think that this is some of the areas of Scripture where Jesus utters the most frightening verses. And historically, many people have looked at these verses, and although they have lived godly wa- lives, they themselves, they've, they've wondered, you know, have I been good enough? Have I been good enough to get into God's kingdom? And some have, you know, used that phrase, uh, you know, and we, we uh, Jesus might look at me and say, I never knew you, get away from me. And, and we use that to warn Christians that if their lives and their service for the Lord is inadequate, they may not get to heaven. An idea like that, though, is nowhere taught in Scripture. And that's not what this is talking about. The key to understanding these verses is found in the context. Context determines what's going on here. And it's critical to see that these verses directly tie into the previous discussion on false prophets. Matthew clearly distinguishes between the you and them. In, 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 in uh, verses 15 to 20, in, in verse 23, the pronoun them links back to the verse uh, in verse 20. Again, them. It's all linked together. And Jesus isn't talking about believers in general. But of false prophets in particular. Jesus Christ is not addressing the wrong actions. Because notice that they talk about the actions there. He's addressing their doctrine, their heart. He reports that many people will appear before him at the judgment and will talk about their works, but not their faith. Isn't that interesting? And the final outcome for them is not very good at all. And so in Seoul, here at Seoul, there have been wolves who have been actively hunting you. And knowing that, they will show themselves, and when they do, we will shoot them. That's the reality of all churches. And to be honest, as your pastor, I have uninvited people from attending. Oh, I thought it's refuge repair. Yeah, but some people are wolves. Some people are destructive. Some people are, only care about themselves, their own ideals, and want to hurt other people. That's not welcome here. I've told people, you're no, wel- no longer welcome to attend our, our gatherings. You're no, wel- no longer welcome to attend our life groups. You're no longer welcome in this building until, until, you submit yourself to serious change and repentance. It's not a very popular idea these days. Some people will say, well, that's kind of cultish. Well, where's the grace in that? <clears throat> I just go back to what I've already said to you. You don't let the wolves play with the sheep. And I need to add, we are willing to walk with them during the process. They're not willing to walk with us. So let me end this. Are you a wolf? <laughs> now, if you hear then I just got to say it very clearly, then you need to repent because <clears throat> it only ends one way. And it may be a year from now, maybe two years from now or longer, but it ends with you getting shot. <laughs> Welcome to Soul Sanctuary. <laughs> Better yet, maybe you know a wolf. Well, then I would encourage you to have a careful conversation that probably needs to happen that you would take some time and you'd read Matthew 18 and approach that person cautiously and carefully and pray for that person and hopefully they'll begin to change. Maybe you're, you're here and you're weak. Welcome to the club. It's in that weakness when we gather that God will show his strength 
And the beauty is, is that God uses the weak people to bring glory to himself. Maybe you're one of those persons who have drifted theologically, and when you talk a lot about God, you say a lot, well, I think. Hmm. Plug, into, plug into a life group and become a study, a, a, a student of study. Become a student of scripture. Just don't attend and just don't think, but actually begin to take your questions. And this is a place where you can do that. And if you have questions about scripture and you have questions about what's going on in culture, write them out, send them to us. Meet with any one of our staff members. As long as we know we're not blindsided. Hey, I got all these questions. Can we talk now? No. <laughs> Email them to us. Set up an appointment. Let us be prepared to help walk you through. Sometimes we can give you a study that you can, you can watch online that will just tell you everything we need to but sometimes we need to hash these things out and this is where we want to start moving in towards the fall is to be able to work with each other and begin where you can have a safe place to ask questions and that we can discover Christ together because my hope in all of this is that we would all grow in our knowledge and especially in our experience with Jesus Christ it's not just about attendance it's about experience and my desire is that in 40 years we'll be known for our focus on the cross of Jesus Christ. That the gospel of our great God and that our legacy would continue to be seen by men and women, by hundreds if not thousands professing faith in him down the line. That's my hope. That's my prayer. And may we continue to give away tons of money like we do. May we continue to believe that God is saving amongst all nations. And may we continue to believe that he will save your next door neighbor if you just open your mouth. Because I believe it's there. And I, uh, my prayer as a pastor is that we move from curiosity to commitment, that we realize the harsh reality that this narrow road uh, leads to life that is indeed hard. Being a believer is not easy, and I pray that we realize that it takes dying daily to ourselves, to our feelings, to our ideologies, to this world on a daily basis. And when we take our scripture seriously, we see our sin seriously, and we see our Savior seriously. Father, I thank you for these men and these women, and I thank you for the opportunity to come in and, and let the Bible press on us a little bit. And for those who are scheming and looking to take advantage of your sheep, I pray that you would convict them. Lord, I thank you for this time. And right now, if there's anyone who says that the Holy Spirit is tugging at their heart, Lord, I just ask that you would lead them up to the crosses here so that there are those of us who are ready to pray with them. I thank you that this day is not by chance. I thank you that your word is intended, intent, indeed true and that it doesn't return void. And I pray that the seed that is planted on fertile soil to produce fruit, whether it's fruit in the lives of those who need a relationship with Christ or that's the fruit in the lives of those who say they have a relationship, but we haven't been serious, as the Bible says. I pray that people will set in their hearts to study the word of the Lord, to do it and to proclaim it in all of the land. I pray that they take the name of Jesus Christ seriously, this tag that we wear, this, this follower of the way, Christians, seriously. I pray that we see scripture as, as a, a heartbeat through uh, the walking and the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray that we see Satan is not really playing, but he's looking to corrupt us. I pray that we make the most of this time.
because the days around us are short. So, Lord, I thank you for the privilege, the opportunity to present your word and to challenge us. Now be with us. Encourage us. Speak to us as we continue to worship and move in this place. And in ancient times, the one who blessed extended his hands, and those receiving a blessing did likewise. And if you're going to stay in worship and stay and pray, please feel free to do so. Otherwise, take your conversation outside. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, be majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. And may you be blessed and go be the church.